when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello. Danielle Riendo. I am both inspired and provoked. Austin Walker, can you match that? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was Austin Walker, everybody. Have a good uh, one, say everybody. Goodbye. Have a good one. I'm going to go back on vacation, I think. Yeah. Maybe I'll just, until yeah. I'm inspired and provoked again. Yeah, sure. Can we make them bigger, Kato? <laughs> no. I wow. mean, I can. I mean, I'm on like, Twitter. I can make threat displays <laughs> if that helps. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean by just, So, no is the answer. The answer is no, you Get can't. Get that wingspan. Bigger. Yeah. Can you yeah. make it so that Rob's face isn't literally blocked by. Can you swap oh. the two? That? That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I can see them all now. There you go. There you go. Oh yeah, the recording spider. Oh uh, yeah, there was a giant. Yeah, there's a giant spider made of metal in this room now, and it was blocking Rob's. This is why I wasn't inspired or provoked because I couldn't be because I couldn't oh. see Rob's face. My muse. What's the evil spider's face that Natalie was scared of during that Bloodborne stream? I truly, it's the spider remember. with the wet face and the red lips. I remember. Kata, you found a beautiful image for it. We, it's fine. Those, that's it's just like, spiders. Spiders are bullshit. Like, <laughs> yeah. who, like why do you have to find a specific one? Any of them. Not a fan. I, I like tarantulas. I respect right. them. I allow, I allow the daddy long legs right. to do their business, yeah, go their have dark fun. business in the corners of my house. <laughs> their dark I do not kill business. them. Yeah, they're eating the bugs. They're, they're doing the bugs. They're, nature is take is doing things for me. I just don't want to see it. You stay up in that corner, mm-hmm. out of sight. Occasionally, my daughter will go. I see a spider, and I was like, "You better be fucking lying to me, kid." <laughs> <laughs> she uh, usually is. She usually is. Spider threats. She doesn't know. Or she sees really small ones. I have been baby. provoked. There it is. Provoked Patrick Klepek. Now we need to inspire him. <laughs> See your name in Metal Gear Solid Five. Provoked Patrick Klepek. <laughs> um, get get oh, David Hader to record it's a voicemail. <laughs> it's time to welcome you to Waypoints. Uh, no. So what we're going to lead off with here is a graphic essay by Nate Powell, who was the artist on the uh, comic series March. Um, covering John Lewis's uh, life and the events leading up to the, um, oh gosh, Selma March, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this is an essay called About Face, Death and Surrender in the Clothing of Men, uh, which talks about sort of the paramilitary aesthetic that has made its way from uh, the armed forces in the era of the global war on terror and has started to become, uh, you know, kind of the fashion statement of a nascent uh, 
fascist movement is Powell's ultimate argument. Uh, and this was getting passed around last week, partly in the wake of uh, another ad that came to people's attention that was put out. It's an old ad, uh, but it sort of became front of mind last week because people, I think, finally started noticing it and passing it around. Uh, an ad from the brand Grunt Style, uh, which shows a... <sighs> How can something this sentimental also be this fucking scary? It's it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this ad getting passed around Twitter. You may have seen it. Uh, it's a cop being threatened by Antifa. Uh, just so terrifying, you know, just all these, all these kids, like some of them are like disrespecting the flag. Uh, some of them are holding signs, calling police fascists. No justice, Um, no peace, no police is what one of the signs says. And a, uh, ethnically, uh, you know, ambiguous police officer. You could, you could read him as. Uh, you know, a variety of ethnicities and 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 races. There's nothing racial about this ad. Nothing about that at all. Um, he's just he's just an American. I think is the way to put it. He played and football. He just loves his country. He always uh, has. Ever since nine eleven, when he learned what it was. Yeah, uh, that's right. As he sees uh, protesters light a flag ablaze, mm-hmm. um, he like has this series of flashbacks to. When he was uh, assault, when he was having his badge pinned on his chest, yeah. graduating police academy, uh, when he watched a fallen comrade uh, being being carried off a plane, he was he was there with his fellow fellow troops, uh, saluting proudly, and then flashing further back to when he gazed up on that flag uh, as he stood at attention as a football player yes. uh, on the high school football field. Uh, just you know, paying homage to to the old to old glory, <laughs> and then yes, uh, <laughs> then yes, we got a flashback to when he's a kid watching a restaging of <laughs> the firefighters raising the flag in front of the World Trade Center. Yeah. Uh, because I, me thinks Grunt Style did not actually get the rights to use the original footage, uh, so so they sort of recreate uh, that that famous moment. And then we flash back forward uh, to the to this cop uh, as Antifa comes streaming over the barricades, and he gives this little smirk. Um, and then this is my favorite part of this thing. Yeah, he shoots his arms out to the side <laughs> like Wolverine in the X Men <laughs> movies. Mm-hmm. And there's a sound effect with it. It makes like a little shunk sound. Mm-hmm. Now you might think. Are cops Wolverine? The answer is no. Uh, however, is it they don't have the healing factor? What's the? They're not from Canada. There's cops in Canada. Um, they don't have the good facial hair, frankly. They, yeah. Okay. Fair. That's that, that's very true. Uh, but with a little movie magic, yeah. With a little movie magic, you can make a cop sort of like Wolverine. By apparently, it looks to me like they digitally remove this asshole's right arm. <laughs> And then they have it spring into existence as he unfurls his arms with a nightstick in hand. Maybe it's and an extent- he is just. <laughs> Maybe it's like a. You're suggesting that like Wolverine's claws, he, he just has out. a nightstick like locked and loaded in the forearm, ready to go. It shoots out, not not. So it shoots down, not out. 
You're right. saying you so, see there is it. no flexion. It is just yeah. a shooting it just, out. It does right. just Danielle, is there any way he could have been holding that arm in that video where you would not have seen his arm a minute before? I, and then it appears yeah, with it a nightstick be, in it. I don't think there is. So there's that, flexion usually. Look at the shoulder. Typically okay. you're seeing flexion Back into with the a left. shoulder. Uh, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> So so anyway, so he shoots his she he shoots his baton claw out and you know it's time like he's ready to do battle uh with Antifa. Right. Um now and and then it ends with uh gosh, what is it? Some things uh we defend. This will defend. This will defend. Yeah. This will defend grunt style. Uh, and then it's a pair of cross rivals. Now, sadly, seconds after that commercial ended, that police officer was eaten by Gritty. Um, so, so we can't have uh, him on today. But uh, no, let's we should have a, a moment of respectful silence uh, for, for, Gritty. for that brave hero. For Gritty's meal. Um, yeah, I mean, Gritty. I mean, look, th- you know, let's spare a thought for Gritty, too. Hey, real quick. Uh, he's got to pass that nightstick. Um, He's big. We only feel it. Um, This will defend is like a real thing from the army, Mm -hmm. right? Can they just do? I guess they can. Fuck it. All right. I'm not. You know what? I'll let the the army handle the army's business. If the army wants to go after (laughs) grunt style, they should. They should do that. I guess I'm not here to defend them. Uh, That commercial was a lot. Uh, because it was so brazen, I think, is part of the thing, right? Like yeah. part of what we talk about, and I think part of the the piece that, uh, that, that you've linked us to here about Face by Nate Powell, what it gets at is like, oh, some of this stuff can be very subtle. Like uh, one of the things that Nate Powell pulls out very early is that things like the universal kind of military haircut, the, the uniform standards, some of that stuff is connected to like particular international regulations. Some of it is tied to rules uh, that are as part of the Geneva Convention about separating out what a soldier looks like versus what a civilian looks like. And that stuff all functions in a very quiet way, in a way to help produce – uh, uh, a a vision of what soldiers look like and therefore also those then kind of funnel into a vision of what patriotism or nationalism or nationality even looks like. But this commercial is not that. And kind of what Nate Powell is trying to get at in this piece is that we're also at this moment where it's becoming the, – the, the kind of symbols at, at play are bigger and bolder and have like stepped out from the shadows a little bit but are also tied to a long history – that or that they are actively tying themselves to a long specific history of fashion and style and uh, national identity and white supremacy specifically. I think something else that Powell is unpacking in this essay, and I think this is probably the most convincing part of the essay. Like this mm-hmm. essay has sort of this essay has three distinct arguments it's making. I do not think they are all, all equally strong or equally thought out, and I'm not sure. Like my it's it's an it's a compelling essay. On further examination, I think the 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 form of the message mm-hmm. can cover over some of the uh, places where the connective tissue of the essay is is maybe a little more alighted. Uh, but where this is probably at its most convincing is where he lays out the fact that in the armed forces, certainly prior to the war on terror, definitely prior to the, to the nineties, uh, you have slightly tighter standards on military appearance and military dress. Uh, and part of that is because there is just more pressure to conform to these like international standards of, 
what combat personnel should look like. Uh, the flip side of this was that when soldiers were not on duty uh, or were not in an active, uh, you know, not on active deployment, they also had a little more freedom or would choose to exercise a little more freedom uh, in Paul's telling as to what they were wearing. And a couple things happened. One is that now uh, basically military personnel are always wearing fatigues. Like even if you're doing a job in the Pentagon, uh, a lot of people are still just showing up to work in, you know, fatigues and boots as if they're, they're in a forward deployment area. And second, and this is probably the more important thing. There's kind of this aesthetic mimicry that starts happening of special forces troops, special forces troops were exempted from a lot of these uniform codes because again, uh, you know, the easiest example is, it is easier to blend in with a civilian populace in, say, uh, the Middle East or North Africa if you are, you know, a dude with longer hair and a beard, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, that's that's a bet. That's probably a more effective costume in some ways for you. Like there's more ways to dress up and sort of blend in uh, if you have the, that appearance than if you are uh, somebody with like you know, a really clean shave uh, and, you know, running around in a standard, uh, easily identifiable uniform. And that aesthetic starts getting co-opted first by regular army personnel, but then it makes its way out to private military contractors. And that seems to be sort of the the move, the, the shift that Powell identifies as kind of being where, where all hell breaks loose. Right. Uh, and his argument is that. Can you describe the in, look really quick, actually? Because I think it's an important distinction to be like, but partially because I think when I say uh, U.S. soldier, I don't know what comes into people's minds at this point because this vision, this image has shifted so much. If I'd said that in the mid 80s, I suspect a very particular image would have come to mind for, for listeners on the podcast when we were doing it back in the 80s. But now in 2019. <laughs> I've got uh, the perfect example. I know exactly. Here, here's the image. Tier one operator yeah, right. in so, yeah, Medal of Honor 2010. Yeah, totally. That no, you're, big, you're 100%. That big beardy like, dude. Yeah, like who who gets promoted in, you know, it's the, who was involved in the, you know, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Like those are the soldiers that get sort of propagated in our like popular culture imagery far more than the more uniformed sense that, you know, Austin is mentioning is harkening back to the, you know, 70s and before. So it's like ba- backward baseball cap, sunglasses, big beard, tattoos on the wrists or on the like it's it's a little bit more biker, a little bit less um, like classic. Saving G- Private Saving Ryan. Private Ryan. There we go. That's, yeah. a, that's a good that's a good touch. Was well, yeah, Bradley Cooper in that Clint Eastwood movie? The um, right. The, yeah, so yeah. Sniper movie. What uh, is the name of the American Sniper? American Sniper. Sniper. Yeah, sorry. Yes. That is even the, the specific it's connection. Even in there. Yeah, sorry. That that uh, Powell makes, right? Yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. I forget where you were going yeah. when I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, I mean, no. And and so. Oh, the, there's. Co- mm-hmm. Sorry, continue. I thought I remembered where you were going, but I don't. Uh, yeah, so the so, sort of that mimicry makes its way out to from regular army out to private military contractors. And those guys all start styling themselves as if they are like elite special forces. Uh, as we, as the record amply shows, they're <laughs> not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the other thing that Paul brings up is that in in 
investigations into uh, the conduct of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, according to Powell, Afghan villagers also noted connections between the conduct American troops showed toward them. And they drew a distinction between ones who looked a little bit more like, you know, your, your typical classic American soldier. And then people showing up in this more uh, like special forces aesthetic, right? The, the bearded sunglasses wearing American troop tended to be more likely to uh, per, like perpetuate violence against Afghan civilians. Uh, and that was an interesting, that was an interesting argument uh, from Powell. And he points out that, you know, when you're wearing a full beard and sunglasses, you're kind of hard to identify. Yeah. Uh, that's going to cover up a lot of identifying features. And part of that entire look then becomes also about not only being able to blend in, but also it becomes about being able to mask your identity without like overtly concealing it. Right. Um, You're not wearing a mask, which would uh, call attention to you and therefore let people know that you're dangerous or uh, kind of separate you from the the you know so-called forces of order which have a monopolization on on quote unquote legitimate force right like you are still wearing your uniform you are not doing something that your you know the people you report to tell you you're not allowed to do and therefore you're acting within your rights and so you're not someone anyone can get on the phone and be like hey I think I see a weird person here that can't happen because you're not yeah. in the in the codification of what weird looks like or dangerous looks like you are an acceptable type. Unlike, for instance, the people who might be on the phone saying, hey, someone dangerous is here for for sometimes similar looking features. Right. Like beards. Right. Um, well, I think that's very much like this. If there's if there's a through line connecting Paul's argument here, it is that. A lot of this aesthetic is about. Implying the possibility of violence without openly declaring intent. Right. It's about creating the sort of space of uncertainty around your appearance and your intentions and your actions that this the, this aesthetic both encourages, but also as it's being brought home, uh, also implies things about how we relate to one another. Uh, they're scary. That is that are deeply troubling about people sort of adopting this aesthetic. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the central thrust of this argument. And it was interesting to watch the different symbols he brings up. Mm -hmm. I. Um, my conception of, like, for example, like the Punisher as a character from Marvel Comics is very much more or less rooted in the end state of how it's been co-opted by, like, a lot of this paramilitary imagery in which, like, oh, like, before I, like, read up in the character, and it's put in a stark, uh, 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 it's nicely contrasted in this image essay where he... Um, the author breaks down the, you know, the origins of the Punisher as like reflective of an attitude in the late 70s as troops are coming back from um, Vietnam and the way they were treated. And this is a sort of a character that's not just about like going around just killing people because like I'm a fucking vigilante and like I'm just going to go do what needs to be done. Like it's a much more complicated, nuanced character in which it was set up as sort of a, 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 a how you viewed the character was a reflection on like how you viewed society and like your role in society. Um, and yet that is absolutely not the way that I constantly see the Punisher imagery used in real life online. Like it is, it is so commonly associated with like, I'm a badass and I, you know, I like, <laughs> like there's just a different 
uh, way that that character, and not even the character, right? Like the character maybe to some extent, but largely just the image of the skull yeah. and what that conveys. I, as someone that had not really done the research on that character, other than just like cultural osmosis, it was like really shocking to to like realize like the the actual layered complexity to that character, and it really put the whole essay into focus. And like when it was picking out those little bits, like the Punisher one is what just stuck out to me because like that's like one that was very not that I'm very identified with the character, but just one like, oh, I thought I knew who that character was. Like, fucking nope. Like, <laughs> um, and I, I found that to be like a really interesting, like way in to understand some of the other icons that the essay pulls from. There are a couple of things here that are, are very, very interesting. One of which is the just inherent tension of the sort of militarization of police that it actually happened, not just mm-hmm. in terms of symbology yeah. or, you know, the way things look or the way style is, but post 9-11 – a lot of police departments obviously received a fuckload of funding for bigger toys, better toys, more, you know, military-esque toys to play with, basically. And that has obviously not been a great thing. And and when I was at the ACLU, I did a little bit of work on – not that I did the work. I'm not a lawyer, obviously. But I did uh, communications yeah, I work on a lot of these sorts of cases, like FOIA requests for – Okay, uh, how did you pay for all of this? It's small town police department <laughs> having like you know, again these these are seen as sort of toys for we toys. Took people shit. <laughs> yeah, right. Like <laughs> it's 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 seen in a lot of ways, and even in this essay specifically, it talks about this being like boys will be boys. You know, uh, these are toys for boys. This is a way of expressing masculinity as well as whiteness. Like the, there's two yeah. levels of this, of course. Here, one is and the whiteness right? and like Americanness. We've got three levels here. Yeah. We've got the Americanness, we've got the whiteness, and we've got the masculinity. Uh, and throughout this essay, it's very, very sort of clear to me that there's there's no room for women here at all in this ideology, right? I, I mean, I suppose there is some room for like the the prototypical like the the woman who wants to be a masculine badass, I suppose, or who supports you can this. Be a Spartan mother. Right, the Spartan mother, the 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 wife, the good wife, right, the who, reproductive, who does yeah, this yeah, too yeah. for her for her man, you know that kind of thing. But that struck me as being very, very, very uh, sort of in keeping with this whole like this is just toxic masculinity. Just drink it down. This is like Gatorade for to- toxic masculinity in it's, a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. I think that like there are times this essay needs another 20 pages if it wants sure. to dig into what it's trying to do. I think like specifically the Mohawk where it's like uh, the Mohicans and also Tranglers 300 Spartans and then Travis Bickle is there and it's like, Mohicans right. are different yeah. tribe, I, by the way. Yeah. Just, uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. The vampire thing too. Mm-hmm. The vampire thing was also kind of like, this um, is interesting, yeah, vampire, but yeah, what's totally. the thread? Totally. Wait, like, can, where, we, can we bring where? it together? So I think there are times, yeah. there are moments where I'm like, I wish I I wish he would have more space to build on this or had just cut some of these things and focused on what works. For me, the thing that worked the best or the thing that stuck with me was th- this section pretty early on where he's talking about the slow return of facial hair and the forever war and the ways in which there is the production of yeah. of a faux innocence. Yeah. I'm just going to read from him because I think it's really strong. He says, The subtle return of troops' facial hair banned for a century to accommodate airtight gas masks in an age of chemical warfare has helped to imply a circular relationship to the history in which a society's conflicts are inescapable echoes of a historical precedent 
a national myth alike by seeing troops resemble their predecessors from the Civil War or Spanish-American War roaming a similar arid landscape, it's easier to conflate these campaigns as chapters in a mythical centuries-old forever war. Mm. This eternity narrative uh, weaves together both Old West revisionism and lost cause fantasies, asserting a narrative of, of eternal innocence, of nobility to provide some meaning to years and lives destroyed fighting someone else's wars – and with eternal innocence, now is then steamrolling our capacity to process, learn, and grow from history. The line he's drawing here is that like this image of like the bearded, lone, you know, tier one operator, the Wild West gunslinger. Wolverine. Wolverine. Absolutely. Literally Wolverine. in like, the credits to that. Absolutely yeah. Wolverine. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. Um uh is this this sort of like um, recurring figure in the stories we tell about imperial wars that America has been a part of, about colonization efforts that Americans have been a part of. And you see it bubble up. We saw it bubble up with Red Dead Redemption last year. Um, we see it told all the time in which you take the figure of this like exceptionally gifted soldier, badass, and you place them despite the fact that they are the purveyors of violence and the thieves of land and the killers of the innocent as themselves uh, just a cog in the machine of the imperial body of the the, the colonial project, not as – Actors, mm. um, and in fact, as almost victims of it. Oh, they're in a, they've been taken advantage of. The, well, the generals of the South. Now, let me tell you, those are honorable men who believed in family and country. They wanted, they, you know, some of them were even abolitionists in their heart, but <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And that, and like that same argument is trotted out again and again, often for this particular model of masculinity and men who are heralded as heroes. Like for me, these are the same arguments that get brought out when a few years ago we were in the middle of talking about uh, statues of, of Confederate generals, right? The types of masculinity that when you point to a statue of Robert E. Lee that you're trying to defend is something that's supposed to be ahistorical, universal, that's something that's supposed to have existed forever and that and that has in the argument the person, whether explicitly or implicitly, says there is good and there is bad and those are ahistorical things. This man is a good man. He was just fighting for the wrong side in this moment of history and once you've once you've seeded that like you've lost the argument in general because then then you've given the uh, the the person who's making that argument the ability to make claims about universality mm. and about what is uh, basically whatever claims they want because they can ground them in a way that doesn't have to deal with actual material repercussions for people and so for me that little section is like where it is the most yeah. productive for the way I think about history and war and the way we we draw our heroes very literally you know yeah, and one point I wish I maybe it expanded on a little because it definitely uh, struck me in a, in a couple of panels is like it touches on the idea of like generational iconography and the way that parents use yes. uh, <laughs> iconography to imprint <clears throat> identities onto children. In that it when it become when iconography becomes identity, it is, and we've all experienced this in different ways. Like it is incredibly difficult to remove that from yourself. Like that can be it, you know, a lifetime's worth of like removing yourself from what you were told a thing means and like that, that I mean, it's a general through line through the whole piece, but like there are bits and pieces in the essay where it, you know, there are, you know, flashes of parents, like, you know, passing on this stuff to their kids in which it's like uh, on some level, you know, the, the parent is doing this on, on purpose in order to make like this, an identity that the child will live with for 
until they're able to untangle it or if they ever choose to untangle it themselves. Um, but even then, that per- that parent is that was passed to them from someone else. Right. Like it is a powerful force that is passed from generation to generation on purpose because once iconography is identity, like it is extremely difficult to untangle the two. And I mean, that's related to the Confederate flags like and, and, the, and the monuments, but like that's like a huge through line here where like once you pass that around through a generation and it's it's given to you from a young age, you know, it's propaganda and propaganda is, is just incredibly hard to untangle from your mind. It takes a lot of work to do so. Yeah, I think uh, for me, one of the things I also found really useful here was just the description of what is uniquely appealing uh, to some degree about the use of the Punisher symbol itself. There's a passage here uh, where Paul writes, the death's head is plausibly deniable in Mm, relation to American fascist symbology, despite its explicit use as a Totenkopf. Uh, because of its wild popularity in pop culture and style, its power lay in its apolitical mass appeal, cool stuff to buy, while functioning to normalize a paramilitary proto-fascist presence. And, what, and that's I, the... No, you go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, that's for me, that's, that's the other part of this. Like, uh, Austin, what you're talking about is like, people beginning to pin down, like, what does this symbol mean? What are you appealing to yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. And removing the ambiguity around that. Look, there's nothing universal here. Robert E. Lee is not something we can just like, he's not, he's no longer the secular saint of American military tradition. He never was, but he certainly isn't now. That's not a tenable position anymore. So if you're, if you're flying like, you know, the Confederate flag, uh, and a lot of people are still perfectly fine to do that. But nevertheless, yes. you are explicitly declaring something with that, that like you are going to be called on. The Punisher thing is useful because basically it allows you to play with like famous uh, fascist symbology, but it's also just the Punisher logo. Like, you know, pay no attention to the fact. Don't that, like, take it so seriously, bro. Yeah. Like it's a comic book. It's a comic yeah, It's on just, Netflix, bro. Right. Right. It got canceled, so but it was good, and part. I've not seen the Netflix it, Punisher. Well, the first I, season was actually really good. That's what I've heard. I actually thought yeah. uh-huh. it was fairly nuanced and interesting. So, yeah. But, yeah. wasn't bad. Yeah, I've, <laughs> yeah. Liked, I've liked it. And the the actor who portrays uh, the Punisher, I forgot his name, Frank and I apologize. Thong? Oh, I thought you meant the, ca- the character's name was Frank Castle. What's the actor's name? <laughs> it's John, John, uh, Bernthal, John Bernthal, I think. Okay. Okay. He is, he is, at least I have heard anecdotally that he is very, like, he he's gotten like really pissed when cops who have, have oh, sure. like done some bad shit and been like yeah Punisher he's been like fuck you that's not I want no part of this. But also like, on the press tour he was like mad love for the troops just <laughs> you know it's so I mean I, I'm yeah. sensitive to the fact that like True. the Punisher is a very important character yeah. to the troops and so I'm yeah, like it's not it's not like he's like pulling apart with that like, yeah of course yes the Punisher is a character that is meant to identify. Mm. With you know people of military service, but like a very specific in a very specific he wants way. The yellow ribbon. Not just like he's good with a gun and takes out the bad. Yeah, guys. he wants to be the yellow ribbon dude who's like support our troops. Yeah. But he puts the yellow ribbon right into his bleeding heart. Right, right there. You know, just, but, he, but he shies away from the blue stripe down the flag down kind the flag. of stuff. He's, he's not into the blue lives symbol. matter. I really wish that a little bit more time had gone into unpacking that for for readers yeah. who did not understand that the the there's there's like a good section on the kind of hyper masculinized like it's wild to even think about the idea of like I just like picturing it like a Stella skit you know what I mean you know Stella like Michael yeah. Stella okay. no, no uh, like Michael Showalter show show hmm Michael Showalter Michael Ian Black and who is the third oh. one. Uh, oh. uh, 
they're all they're great comics who were also part of uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Like anyway, I know what you mean now. Sorry, in a fucking Different board. Stella. People listening will know who I'm talking about. In a boardroom with a whiteboard, being like, "How do we make the American flag more masculine?" And just like all in suits. And the solution that has happened for real is remove all of the color for, from it, except for a pale blue line down the middle of one of the stripes, representing, of course, the blue line of the police who protect us and certain who who serve us, you know? Um, and I wish there'd been a little bit more detail on that, on how that practice happened. Like, I don't know who first did, made that flag, and I'm curious, and I'm curious mostly, did it come from law enforcement directly, or did it come from uh, commercial, like, venture who recognized an opportunity and was like, I know what to do. It's a very good question, but in, in, this is one of the complexities for me of this is that I work with so many people on my ambulance in my ambulance corps. Uh, there's so many sort of first responders mm-hmm. who are very into this idea. They are very into this symbology. They are very into Blue Lives Matter. They share memes all the time on like our private mm-hmm. Facebook page for my ambulance corps. And it's uh, infuriating and troubling and something I see every day from people that I I don't know what to think about it. It's one of those. It's really, really well, I mean, troubling. Like, look, the the uh, like undeniably the the thing is there are traits that people who, that there are traits that will cause the same person who is attracted to authoritarianism and fascism to also be attracted to public service and like first response work. Like oh, there sorry. are you know the, there there are things that both of the like that ideology and that kind of work will appeal to and. The same person who is absolutely the person you want to see uh, showing up, like walking through the door on like a really terrible day for you and your family could also be somebody you absolutely don't want to see uh, <laughs> at the door at another in another context. Right. Like, yeah. so it doesn't surprise me uh, that that there's that there's that overlap. Um I do, however, man, people who like get really behind the shit, like this is the thing that really disturbed me about that ad. People who really do get behind this idea of like viewing the police as a persecuted population that must be protected, who really get like fucking misty eyed about like people calling the police fascists and like who would watch that like grunt style ad and be like, damn, like, thank you, troop cop. For 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 being that thin blue line, like people get fucking misty misty about that shit. Um, oh, it just makes my skin crawl. I mean, it comes from it, a very particular uh, belief about what the state of the world is and the state of nature. That like, if not for troop cop, all of our doors would be being kicked in. We'd all be being robbed and, and murdered uh, constantly. Yeah. you can't trust anyone out there, especially those people. And everyone's a perp. Right, exactly, yeah. right? Um, which which is a produced and taught belief about the world. This isn't it doesn't come from a vacuum. Like um, this is part of a long history of uh, entertainment media, of schooling, of you know, faith. Well, and also and, then and, like and, there's and police secular. consultants and trainers. Totally, totally. Who like go around the country like Bradley yes. Balco like wrote stories about well, he wrote literally wrote a book about police militarization militarization. Yeah. But also like small town police departments also hire consultants to Go around the country and impart the same ideology. Like yeah. they show up saying, "Like I'm going to teach you to be a more effective officer." But in addition to that, what the, and and what being a more effective officer frequently means is like how to fuck somebody up in close quarters combat. Uh, and then the other thing they're teaching is you're not just a cop; you're a street warrior. 
you know what I mean? You are, you're, you're a superhero. Uh, and so that, that's the other thing that I think there's always been a, a strain of this in like American policing, but I think probably in the last 25 years, 20, 30 years, um, it's become kind of an ideology that has spread almost virally uh, in terms of like training methods adopted. Um, I mean, this goes back to that piece that uh, got run aside him twice in this episode. Duncan Fife wrote yeah, about Daryl Gates. Yeah. Um, about, you know, the the template he laid down for a hyper-militarized Los Angeles Police Department in the, like, in the 60s and 70s became a model for American policing across the country um, and, and still kind of is. And then gasoline was poured on that by, uh, you know, post 9-11 procurement budgets. If you have not read that piece, it is how Sierra and a disgraced cop made the most reactionary game of the 90s by Duncan Fife over on Waypoint. Definitely go give that a read because it is a fantastic look at how um, the the how how Gates one produced an image of uh, Los Angeles that was a, a kind of a lawless Mad Max vision of the world that uh, would allow him to be justified in the brutal policing methods that he advocated for, taught, and allowed to happen under his watch. And then, after finally kind of being pushed uh, off the throne, he went to work with Sierra to make a police quest game that doubled down because there it was the world of fiction. He could build whatever fucking world he wanted to. And that just played all the way into that. Uh, it's, it's a great piece by Duncan um, and, and one of my favorite pieces I think we published in terms of just like – deep dives into shit I didn't fucking know about. Might be um, my favorite piece we've ever put on the site. Totally, totally. <laughs> also, I'll note I did some Googling around and it looked like a lot of major flag companies started selling the thin blue the thin blue line flags in like 2014. But when they, of course, blew up was like, yeah, so so it's Black Lives Matter and it's, it's marches, right? Like it's specific yeah. marches from Black Lives Matter. It's counter protesters uh, after police kill black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the counter protesters needed something to wave. And so what they had were thin blue, blue uh, line flags. Obviously, the term goes back way before that. But in terms of like, we sold a bunch of these this year, <laughs> 2014, 2015, 2016 seemed to be the, the big years. And they're probably profitable. Oh, That's yeah. That's the really fucking sad thing. Like mm-hmm. I can imagine maybe that was a chunk I, I am guessing, mm-hmm. but uh, given, again, the, the view I have on the f- kind of folks who enjoy this sort of thing, uh, I imagine they sure are buying those flags. Thin blue line, 20% yeah. off St. Patrick's Day code. Oh, my fucking God. Mm-hmm. So okay. when, when you're when you're pulled over <laughs> on St. Patty's Day, a cop will know this guy's all right. Got this for 20%, 20% off. 20% off. Bro. All right. I, oh, sorry. Uh, Go we're going to take a quick break and hopefully not try to sell you uh, anything from Grunt Style. Who could say? Uh-oh. It's, al- could it's say? algorithmic. It's programmatic. We could. Who, who knows? Who could say? My understanding yeah. is we run ads for the the British military. And I was like, don't do that. And the response I got was not helpful, is what I will say. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Shunk. We're back. <laughs> Shunk. Wow. All right. Uh, our next our, our next waypoint uh, is from the magazine Heterotopias, uh, and it is a piece My called Six magazine. Cities. Just kidding. Sorry. Is it not your favorite magazine? No, it is. Wow. It's a is that, joke on promote it and wow. then drag it? It's a joke time. on gayness. Wow. Hetero. Fun. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Fine. Mm-hmm. I should have developed that better. I should have said gaytopia. <laughs> this is my favorite. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Rob, continue. I apologize. Uh, it's your waypoint, man. You can, you can do whatever you want to it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the piece is Six Cities. Uh, it is written by Maria Bonate Escoto. Yes. And it is a piece about one of my favorite games, Designer. Danielle, want to tell the people what this article is about? Yes. Uh, and in case you didn't know, Heterotopias, which is amazing. And I'm sorry I tried to make a very terrible joke. I'm really on a fucking roll today with my jokes. Uh, uh, is a, a magazine about architecture and space and place in video games. Really, really awesome. Uh, if you're interested, I, I, I think there's like a heterotopia. I, I we'll find the website, whatever, it's fine. You can buy it. It's, it's wonderful, great work. This piece is about... Uh, Dunwall and Karnaka, the two sort of main cities in the Dishonored games, and the way in which both uh, they both show a sort of sickness, they show a, a type of decay and the way sort of human bodies can decay, and also talk about uh, slow violence and the idea of environmental uh, destruction and decay and also sickness sort of through human intervention, especially through powerful humans, humans who, you know, people who uh, oppress others, make them do dirty work. And in doing so, ruin the environment uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, I loved this piece. I thought it, it made a great case for uh, these concepts in the games and, and kind of goes through the games. It kind of goes through both mechanics and also environmental design. Uh, but also in that I actually – so I love the Dishonored games. I'm a huge fan. We all know this. Uh, but I never actually finished the first one because of how disgusting I found the place itself, how mm. disgusting – I found Dunwall. It really upset me on a, on a like, in a, not visceral. That's not the no, right but term. But like, no, but in, in a, like. That might be a proper use of visceral. This might be right. You know, yeah. the one use of visceral mm. we can use today. Partially because I knew a little bit about whaling. Growing up in New England, I used to go to whaling museum. This is my family's idea of a great time. Mm-hmm. Was like, let's take the our, our little girls to this whaling museum, uh, which was fairly sanitized, to be honest. You know, places like New Bedford. Rob, I'm sure you know uh, a lot of. A lot of places like that. Um, so oh, yeah, you know, I know all the whaling spots. Yeah, you knew a little bit about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Captain Rob, oh, Admiral boy. Rob, I understand. Uh, and it always has- You know, Danielle, when it's a dark and dreary November in my soul. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Shout-outs to Mark. Uh, Shout-outs to Nathaniel <laughs> Philbrick, actually, uh-huh. his book, uh, In the Heart of the Sea, for te- telling me a lot more about whaling uh, as an adult. Later on in life, I read that book. Uh, it's about, of course, the the sort of- progenitor story to Moby Dick uh, about a whaling ship that was sort of attacked by the whale it was uh, going to kill. Uh, Whaling is a truly grisly, disgusting, smelly, gross, horrible, cruel business. Uh, And much of this sort of industry in uh, especially Dunwall is based on whaling. And you see a lot of it and you eat things like potted whale meat that may or may not be tainted in the game, like through the actual gameplay. You see whales you see whaling ships you see all this really nasty disgusting business uh and it is a business it is the business that the city runs on is this really gross nasty sort of terrible thing that keeps keeps the oil lanterns burning it keeps the new technology coming it keeps all the cool things kind of going 
in the city itself. Uh, so it's like a really, really powerful and maybe it's a little on the nose uh, for a metaphor, but it is very powerful and and very sort of effective, I think, in the sort of the storytelling of the games. Uh, the writer also talks about uh, mining and, and sort of how the miners are oppressed in Karnaka. Uh, it goes into some sort of colonial notions and how Karnakans are sort of uh, used and, and abused by their uh, sort of powerful elites, uh, and also does go into a little bit of the rat plague itself, which is a uh, you know the sort of very literal sickness uh, that is affecting Dunwall in the first game, uh, as again a sort of metaphor for the sickness of this industry and the ways in which people are you know, ruining the place. The human intervention didn't just put up a city and you know a sustainable business; it right. is a nasty, grisly, uh, exploitative business that the city runs on. So really cool piece. I, I don't know if other folks read it. Yeah, or, I definitely read okay, it. Cool. I, think we, yeah. I think we all read it. We all knew it was yeah, on the no, list. Uh, yeah, it's, right. I, I think it's like, like yeah. the right. opening, uh, <laughs> the way she opens the piece is talking about an oil spill in Spain yeah. Yeah. Um, that was uh, particularly disastrous and then sort of like the punchline is that, you know, the I believe the government sued the, the folks responsible for um, the oil spill and it took something like 10 years for it to like wind its way to the courts and like come to a conclusion. And the conclusion was, I'm paraphrasing, but like, wow, that was a long time ago. Kind of hard to assign blame at this point. So <laughs> yeah. let's just move on. And, uh, you know, she uses that as a way it's like uh, when environmental disasters or, or, or like long term disasters are inflicted on a people or a region. Um, the distance, like the increased distance of time can make it uh, functionally and practically difficult to assign blame and to understand what happens to a people in a place over time. And part of what Dishonored does especially well is showing that displacement, showing over time what uh, environmental, what political decisions, how those intermingle and the, the way games uniquely allow you to get a better sense of um, – both the affliction and the responsibility that like occurs uh, because Dishonored is playing with similar sorts of things that are both like, you know, mining is something they're choosing to do. But then there are, you know, uh, you know, uh, sort of spill effects and consequences of the way that entire world is built, or at least that, you know, that, that one empire is built on whale oil. Um, I think she's absolutely right. That, like Dishonored does is is one of those games that I I found myself more than than not um, even as someone I, I like. Uh, these types of games, but Dishonored is one of the ones that I would actually spend the time sort of like studying the environment in a way because it seemed to communicate a lot about its people, even when the cutscenes themselves weren't necessarily always in service of that. Yeah. I think part of the reason that, that Dishonored works in this way so well, and like honestly, at like a fairly surface level, like it is easy to play Dishonored 1 and be like, man, fuck all this. Whereas, <laughs> like, seriously, like, you yeah. go through the houses of the rich people who've not been affected by the rat plague or who've only just recently, after years of, of benefiting from, from uh, you know, the oppression, things are finally starting to crumble around them. It, it, like, I think that's a strength of it, partially because of its dedication to building a very unique setting. Um, you know, I, I, the author of this piece notes that, like, sometimes people call it steampunk, um, but it doesn't really have the baggage that a lot of steampunk has in the same way, which is, well, except for one one particular thing, because I think we have been, we have been critics of steampunk in the past because of its faux apoliticism. Mm -hmm. 
it's sort of like dedication to like high adventure and like it's just cool because it's gears. You just put gears on there and that looks really neat. It's in love with itself. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and it's in love with itself without any sort of critical reflection. It's not even in love at like what it's saying. It doesn't think it's saying anything except this looks good. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> – uh, and Dishonored is not like that. Dishonored from just like, again, without a deep dive, just the surface level is like, this is industrialization. We are killing all of the whales. <laughs> like people are dying in the streets. Uh, you know, the the market is broken and the those in power are helping it break us. Um, but I do think there is one thing that I wish had come up here and that this is, I think, maybe Rob or you're talking about the Duncan Fife. The second Duncan Fife piece that we're going to reference today is he also wrote a piece for us two years ago now, 2016, called The Un- Settling political power fantasy of Dishonored 2, in oh, which yes. he gets into the the player characters' um, uh, complicity with all of this shit, right? Because this is a piece in which he kind of identifies. This is like being written right after Trump gets elected, obviously. So it's like I think where a lot of our headspace w- was. Um, but the the Emily Caldwin, who you, you play as, or you play as her father Corvo in in Dishonored 2. Um, you are the head of state or you are deeply connected to the head of state and have, you know, whatever reforms you may have done, you have not fixed the mining situation in Karnaka. You have not stopped the the uh, natural disasters uh, that, that plague your land. You have not stopped, uh, uh, you know, all the whaling and the exploitation of natural resources. Um, and the the ending, like the good ending as Fife. Uh, identifies it is basically the reestablishment of the royal family in power and that's kind of it it is not a world of, of revolution it is not a world where we address what those deep problems are you know maybe you send some bad people to the gulag in the <laughs> first game and that's a specific way one quest yep. can end right the brothers uh, the yeah. brothers yeah totally but like you're not enacting systemic change on the structure of society it is a game that is that shows you all that stuff but it's not enabling you to change it even though you are literally the executive and not just the executive you're the executive of a what is effectively a monarchy like i actually I don't, maybe i don't remember maybe i should have yeah, read there's more an books empress. In the game i know there's an empress but i actually don't know if she's like a real head of she's a real head of state right yeah, I she think is so. oh, yeah. Okay, yeah it's not like a part there's not there's no like fake parliament there's no like okay I think she makes decisions. She makes decrees. This is all really actually fascinating to think about from this angle as I'm still listening to last week's Waypoint, the uh, Revolutions podcast mm. on the French Revolution. Episode 22 now, Rob. That's uh, where, where I got into uh, so far. But yeah, right. it is it is a really, really uh, very cool thing to think about in terms of the sort of real world stuff that it's playing with, certainly, and maybe failing on that level. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this was my one frustration with the piece is that I like the piece. It was a fun trip down memory lane of why I like Dishonored. The problem is that it also felt like it was just telling me what the game I played was. Like this, <laughs> this was kind of my the the thing I was running into with this piece is like if you had played Dishonored and you'd like paid attention to the journals you got, like all of this stuff was pretty on like it was pretty upfront. The game wasn't concealing this from you. This wasn't a a uh, you know, subtext to the game or something that was revealed only through, uh, you know, extensive exploration. This was pretty much what the game set up front were, were its major themes, right? The first game is about <clears throat> sort of the, uh, <sighs> almost the, the, the caustic moral effect 
that uh, an extractive industry like whaling what was having on society, the way it was sort of breaking down uh, bonds of empathy in the people who were most implicated in it and how that sort of reflected a broader societal breakdown in empathy. Uh, the second game is very much about these tensions between, um, you know, workers uh, who, who labor in extractive industries and then the owners who are always pushing for more faster, uh, you know, looking to cut corners. All that stuff was kind of there up front in in Dishonored. And I think what I, what I would have liked this piece to, to dig into a little bit more, and this is why I liked the section on, um, you know, that environmental disaster in Spain, for instance, yeah. is either connected to more things outside of the game or dig in a little bit more into what the game's conception of its political universe and mm. the relationship between politics and economics actually is right. What, what is implied? What is, what is being, what, what is being implied behind the, the, this world they've constructed on the surface. That was the thing. I kind of felt like I was, I was missing a little bit from the story. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a very, uh, very fair and valid <laughs> thing to feel about it. Certainly. Um, I, I was also, I was drawn in by the slow violence, uh, sort of aspect of it, uh, the connection to environmental disaster and also just environmental what that is for people who don't, I, so I again, somebody before. who probably knows this a little better than me could definitely talk about slow violence. My understanding of slow violence is it is a term for what we're doing to Earth. It is a term for the fact that, that human intervention and the ways in which we go about doing our business as human beings is ruining our planet, even though we've been sort of specifically, you know, adapted and designed to live on this planet. And now we are doing this slow violence on such a massive scale. Again, I I am not well, like the, an in, environmentalist. In the but, of that, yeah. Um, of the uh, uh, of the oil spill, like what she illustrates is like the the slow violence is uh, okay. It wasn't as bad as it could have been, and like we've only because of timing, only because of timing, right? And it's like okay, we kind of cleaned it up, but like okay, it had an effect, and it's like we're just not going to know what that is because it's all (laughs) retrospective. It's all hindsight. So it's like a slow violence occurs when like 15 years later you go ah fuck. Damn, like those animals are just gone because of that spill, which wasn't as bad as it could have been. Well, you know, could have been worse. Right. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. like that occur. You know, part of it occurs in hindsight right. as you understand that, like, it wasn't uh, you know a-, a bomb going off, but you know, it, it is it is certainly left a mark. You just don't know what the marks are until much later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's hard to identify what's, when it's happening. I think that's the other part of this is that if you looked at so when you come in Dishonored Two, I think this is this is well laid out in the piece. You come to Karnaka in Dishonored Two. That place is messed up. Yeah. Like yeah. that place clearly was beautiful. It is now pretty much a full on hellscape. <laughs> yep. And that nobody would nobody would just be cool with someone coming into their beautiful town, their beautiful community and turning it into a hellscape, right? Like if you were like, Hey, you mind if I just release these ravenous blood flies in <laughs> that building, that building, that building. Uh, and then I'm just going to like, just jet some silver dust into the air. Just like really just breathe it in, just steep in it. Hey, like, where should I put the sand? We got all this sand. Can we, can we put it, can we put the sand in here? The concrete? The con- we're just going to dump it yeah. in this room. Is that okay? Cool. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, nobody yeah. would just let you do that. But the thing is, this stuff unfolds on a slow enough time scale that, like, for small things break down, 
first small things change and then you sort of hit a tipping point and the changes happen very fast and things sort of fall off a cliff very, very quickly. That's the other part of this is that if it happened all at once, we would recognize it as what it is. It is violence. It is the destruction of a community and a way of life. It happens slowly enough that we don't notice. We don't know to call it violence a lot. This is one of the things that I think is super interesting. I was getting to this point before and I didn't quite make it correctly. I didn't quite finish my thought, which is one of the reasons why I think Dishonored works is because the ways in which it shows these things feel novel in contrast to a lot of other immersive sims, sure. a lot of their games that are about dystopias, because those are tended to be using the iconography, the symbols of stories we've heard a million times, right? Like I like Deus Ex. I like Deus Ex Human Revolution. That was the most recent. No, not the most recent. Most recent was Mankind Divided. Mankind Divided. Right. I, but all of them generally use symbols I've read about in science fiction that I have seen already in in you know movies on television in anime and I'm not saying that there is not a, a ground uh, that there is not a a, a collection Dishonored doesn't have a bibliography it absolutely does have a bibliography it is absolutely pulling from things like the Difference Engine and some other like works right. in industrial fantasy uh, from from Perdido Station from like a bunch of different particular books I'm not saying it's not doing that but when I first walked in into one of those rooms that had the mosquitoes when I first like walked into uh, some of the when I first like saw the rat plague move through mm. the streets it, with the speed that it did and then and then was asked to embody that rat plague and think about in utilitarian terms what does have what does being part of this spreading like uh, uh, rodent disease uh, <laughs> look like at the when I say systemic here I don't mean what I mean here is like at the infrastructural level or at right, the right. at the like as a blip inside of this machine that is a connection of of you know pipes and and gutters and everything else. How does how do things move through that system almost like in a Sim City sense? It it was very evocative and very striking in a way that like robot arms are not. And I like robot arms <laughs> a great deal. Yeah, but they're never going to make me like halt in my tracks and be like. Oh, like that, and Dishonored does that very often. I think this piece is a good job of like pulling those out very poetically, and like, or like you said, there's a nice walk down memory lane for me a little bit here. Of like, you know what? Yeah, those were the images that helped. Things like the electrified walls, you know, like stuff like that, really does communicate something about a particular space. the The irony there is that there's almost a tension, which is the examples of walking into the room and being like, "Oh fuck, there's a bunch of giant mosquitoes in here." Is fast violence like in the world of this of this game? It's slow violence, right? Like this stuff happened slowly, so slowly that nothing was done to to halt it uh, in a way that that hid the the damage being done to local communities. But in order to be effective, and I don't just mean this in a video gamey sense, but in order to be effective for you, the player, you have to be punched in the fucking gut by it most of the times. I think there are probably some instances where you slowly start to understand what something is, maybe. Um, but by and large, like the ways that these games work is like, yo, ah, I can't believe this is happening. Or, oh my God, did you see this thing? Um, and that's just, it, I'm not dismissing it. This is an interesting yeah. tension between those two. They're using quick, they're using quick symbols to talk about slow violence. And that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I think she kind of makes a point that like, yeah. yeah, mechanically you're doing a whole lot of killing people, people and stabbing <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, blipping out of, into oblivion. Yeah, and I don't it's, even it's mean kind that of the violence. art style that's almost doing, not art yeah. style, but environmental design and architecture. I don't even like mean that. the literal violence. I mean, there, you the mean way that they deploy that iconography yes. being immediate it's, in your face. Yeah, 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 yeah of, totally, course, totally. of course. Which is what art has to do sometimes. Like the, right. That's its goal. Its goal is to be the translator for you to show you what well, the historical cost has been. Yeah. 
And it's this very tension that troubles Duncan, right? Which is right. all of Dishonored 2 is Emily or Corvo, but like I played Emily. It's it's Emily <laughs> yes. going to Karnaka and be like, whoa, what? I had no idea. <laughs> and so it's this like- I'm just an empress. Like, I'm a simple right, she's country empress. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like, I had no idea that this city that was providing all the silver for the kingdom uh, had turned into a strip mined hellhole. Uh, wow. <laughs> shocking. Uh, and so I think that's the, that's, you know, the, the game does a decent job of handling that because your character's perspective is someone who's not been effective, an effective ruler and only identifies emergencies when they're put before her. Yeah. Um, which is kind of the, the damning verdict uh, that, that Duncan reaches in his essay on the sort of Corvo Emily regime. Uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun trip down memory lane. It's a good article in heterotopias. Uh, it's also got a lot of just gorgeous dishonored screenshots yes. uh, yeah. in sort of a troubling decaying way. Uh, <laughs> so you really should definitely, quick. I also want to shout out Yusef Cole's piece, Billy Lurk Was the Spirit of Justice in 2017, also yes. on our site, which talks about a time in which Dishonored slid the camera away from the, like nobility and at uh, a character who was approaching things as a person who has to deal with what the fucking nobles get up to. Um, uh, it's a great piece and, and shows that the game designers are not like – you know, uh, uh, neither neither ignorant nor ambivalent about about these questions. Like, there's a good attempt to at least address some of that stuff. It's also uh, the best dishonored game, I probably the most distilled. It's my favorite one. Uh, so yeah, Death of the Outsider. Just in case, you're so curious. good. Uh, speaking of the struggles of everyday people, far from the centers of power, far from the elite. Uh, Patrick, you had a, you had a quick shout out uh, thing you wanted to bring up this week. Yeah, I just wanted I just wanted to point people in in its direction. I haven't watched the whole thing, and so I didn't feel comfortable making it a full waypoint. But there's a uh, well, as there is every 15 minutes, there's a new series on Netflix. Um, <laughs> and I was uh, in my in between my uh, pain medication induced haze, I was looking for something kind of light to watch, and like the blazoned upon is just a show called Losers. And I'm like, all right, well, my first I was like, oh, it's like. Some kids in high school, you know, whatever. Like, I just was like, that's just one of a billion different shows. But actually, it's like a, it's a docu series, um, in which it examines, uh, like the basic through line is people who, in a moment in their life, uh, faced um, some moment of adversity and loss, and uh, or not lost, but lost. And then what did that do to them? And like specifically, it the through line is at least I think it's all athletes. Um. The first episode is is a boxer. The the episode I want to to pitch you on, and this is I I mentioned it in a chat room, uh, our Discord, um, being like, and no one has to watch it. It's fine, but like I put it out there because I was like, I know Rob would really enjoy this, and he specifically said like, not gonna have time, but like thanks for the the offer. And then earlier today, messages me with detailed breakdowns. <laughs> <of this episode. laughs> um, the if you watch the second episode, which if, all these episodes I think are like twenty five minutes long, um, so they're like a really eat digestible something you can do while you're literally digesting your lunch, um, is about. Uh, man, I've now for now it, Turkey is that how you pronounce, Rob? Uh, yeah. Like, um, uh, so like in, in the um, in the UK, uh, like there's these you know uh, different soccer leagues slash teams or clubs. I guess it was the cl- clubs is the equivalent of teams, right? Like for yeah, yeah the clubs. Um, and basically there was a change. We should get you into soccer. 
We should get you I into soccer. I'd like to. We should get you. We should all give me a team. Scarf. Who looks so good in a scarf, Patrick? In the, even in the outfit he you're wearing would. right now, I think we should get all of us into Premier League soccer. Yeah. That, well, but like but a, that, a middle of the road sold on right now, though. I Patrick, know. I'm so. I'm so I'm, okay. <laughs> tell us about Torque, uh, uh, the the Torque Football Club, please. Sorry. Well, they're bad. Um, <laughs> like, okay. they're extremely bad. And there was a change made in terms of like the league structure, um, in which like you had to like basically you got into different tiers, and if you were in the bottom tier, if you were the very worst team. You were just yeah. kicked out. This is a like, thing. You were you're just gone, and so um, the, the, you know the, the Torquay uh, uh, Torquay United was like faced with <laughs> a season in which like they were they were very likely facing that they were going to be last. They're going to be kicked out, and you have to like you have to situation that this um, it's yes, it's just a random club in a in a random city, but it meant the world. Like this is what the city did every Saturday afternoon. Like there's an interview with like one of the mega fans who, uh, you know, kind of speaks for like the larger fan culture for this club. And like when they realized this prospect that if they lost, if they became in last place this year, they basically, once you get out of the club, players don't want to play. They're like, it's, it's more than likely that the biz- it's going to go out of business. Like it's just not going to be able to sustain itself. If it can't actually be part of the proper organization. And so what the city did on Saturday afternoons was watch this club play. They were bad, but they didn't care that they were bad. It was their team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like there was going to be like God. a sincere loss of identity. And this has been a pattern, I guess, throughout the UK where once it's impl- like once these things started being implemented, once you're no longer actually in the proper organization, like the clubs just go away. Like, and then you have to find a new one. And so like a lot of these like, s- like smaller teams that couldn't attract a lot of talent, couldn't bring in a lot of players. And, um, so I thought going in the arc of this episode, because like there are so many little things I could talk about, and I just would just encourage people to watch it. The arc of what I thought this was going to be was, oh, this team is just going to go on fire for a season, and they're just going to get really good, get right up to the edge of like winning, I don't know, like some tournament, and then just like fall off the map. And it's like, oh, the lovable losers came so close, and then no, and it's like no. They're just bad. They're <laughs> extremely bad the whole season. And it comes down to the final game of the season where um, if they don't, and it's not if they, they don't need to win. At this point, they are uh, now within, uh, I think, Rob, it was like being allocated on a, a scoreboard of like how many goals they had scored. A, a yeah, it's, it's a bit like hockey. Season. Like you get three points in the league for winning a game. Uh, like two for a tie, uh, I, I think. But then they were going to tie with somebody at the end of the season, and then it would be decided just on goals scored across the season. So they yeah, ended so up like in a, a place <laughs> where one goal gets them a lock. Yeah, and I guess like the the team they end up playing in their final season is an extremely good team that has nothing to play for except to just kind of fuck with these people. And like the stakes are like very clear, and it's just. Uh, it's just, it, it's wonderfully shot. It's wonderfully, uh, there's, there's only like three or four characters like that they're interviewing, but they all have such personalities that, um, and the, 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 I don't want to spoil where it goes, but the, the, the game itself has so someone gets bit by a dog and continues to play is what I'll say. Wow. Um, and oh all right, I'm going to watch it's it. It's just, it's just, it's great. And the first episode, I, I Danielle, you, you would specifically, I think like the first episode, yeah. it's about a boxer. Awesome. And um, it has its own fascinating arc, but like 
this video we spent 25 minutes, even though I watched the rest of the series, because I can't necessarily recommend it. It is just, it's a little slice of, uh, or as Rob put it in our conversation, it seems like a piece of the Midwest that we found out <sighs> in the UK that makes me want to find like my own lovable loser team. Because boy, God. they may not be cheering for winners, but damn, they seem like they're having a lot of fucking fun. Yeah. Um, and there's just so, I, the in a larger sense, like, I, I like the, the, the premise of the show, which is like, yes, it's called Losers because it's to attract your attention. But the episodes themselves are not about like reveling in somebody's worst moment. It is actually about trying to sort of unearth like what is interesting about loss and like what does that also mean? Because it's not just there are different concepts of what losing means. It's not just like a a binary thing. And so I'm anxious to see how other episodes maybe play with that. Um and yeah, so it's losers on Netflix. It's uh, it's really good. At least watch the second episode. Yeah, my, my guess is it'll it'll sell you like it did for me. Nice. That episode is super cute. Highly I'm gonna watch this. This is I need all, it. I'm looking at the list of other episodes, and they all look really really interesting. Need this in my life. Yeah. Uh, Austin, you're watching something else though, right? I so I, I'm about to rewatch some. So you know I'm in a Gundam mode right now. Like no show, really. He's yeah. in a Gundam. I'm in a big one right now. We talked about this on Monday show and how like it's more than usual right now. And <laughs> and now it's in the news. Oh my fucking god! I didn't even want to talk about. Do this. I, should I not have done that? I'm sorry. Oh no, we can talk about that for a second. That's not my waypoint, and it's not my shout out. <laughs> my my waypoint is Austin's feelings on Brian K. Vaughn writing a screenplay for a Gundam adaptation. <sighs> I it's gonna be. I don't trust. Hmm. They're allowed to do whatever they want. I just want you to know, Austin. I'm fine. We need to. We need to just give Austin's posture. He closed his eyes. Yeah. He breathed out. I'm gonna he be thought fine. about it. It's been. It's the 40th anniversary year anniversary of Gundam. Gundam starts in double O double O seventy nine. That is the year in the fiction that it takes place. Double O seventy nine. It starts in nineteen seventy nine. So it's been here for forty years. They tried to do a live action thing once that was a fucking disaster. So it's hard to want them to do another one. Uh, sure. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn is a person whose comics I like. Um, I don't know that I've ever liked anything he's done visually like not not uh in in tv uh mm. before actually i don't know is he has he done movies actually has he written movies no he's mostly done i know tv, TV. stuff he, i know he got, yeah he got brought into television writing off of, of lost uh, right or off yeah, of, he, off he of why the last man but that was like during the why the last man run that he was doing mm. when he was yes. doing why the last yes. man so not the run it's his comic but anyway um yeah, right. but like i don't i don't love lost we've talked about that um and he's done he did something on um he was part of uh, uh, what do you call it? Right? Um, what do you call it? What's the other? What's the show? Is he not part of uh, Robots Wild West? Westworld. Westworld. Oh. Is he not? I don't think so. Okay. Robots Wild Someone West. Someone told me good. that today, and I was like, I didn't know that. And it turns I mean, out. I wouldn't be surprised if he's, but I don't think like. Whereas in Lost, he was like one of the like regular episode writers, gotcha. from season three forward. I don't think. He 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 jumps in a lot of like sci-fi. He he does a lot of like script punching up and stuff like that right, because right, he right, right. does a lot of sci-fi work. Yeah. So. Anyway, I anyway, so I, I just wanted saga. to leave that for a brief I, moment. Yeah, it's fine. We'll see how that shakes out. I'm not too. It probably won't get made because these get, get made like if every does, couple of weeks. It's and... going to be the Star Trek movie. Here's the thing: if that movie gets made, it's just going to be instead of it's not going to be like a big chunk of the Gundam story. It's going to be like a modern retelling of. Stuff that happens before the first episode of Gundam, in which there's like a kid on a motorcycle, like a hover motorcycle or a circle it's the motorcycle. the only genius level repeat offender in the Midwest. That's exactly, well, except it's going to be the other way where he's a nerd instead of being like 
cool. Genius level cool. nerd on the Midwest. Uh, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. He's not going to get into a Gundam until minute 80. Um, and that's fine. Well, you got to pay the, the the ticket to get the sequel, to get the, I know. the budget that's exactly to, do, what it's gonna, to, do, to that. do it. Right. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Anyway. <laughs> What I do want to shout out is – so because I've been in this mode, I've been tweeting about Gundam a lot and I've been like putting out like screenshots that I've like, oh, wow, this is a really interesting moment. Or I, I linked out to the the Origin comic recently, which you can just read online by the way. Um, search my Twitter feed for a link to that. Uh, the thing I specifically want to shout out is a correction for myself, which was – which I, I wasn't incorrect. Netflix was just fucking li- – or not Netflix. Hulu was just lying. Hulu had said that they were going to remove 08th MS team, which is one of my like, – like, here's a good starting point for Gundam. It's called Gundam 08TH, 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 like the 08th division, 08th MS, the letters M, the letter S, which means mobile suit, team. Master of Science. Master yeah, of okay. Science from Hulu. <laughs> One, they didn't remove it, so it's still there to watch if you have Hulu. Two, and here's the real deal. This is the shit I'm actually, this is my secret shout out. You could just watch it without a Hulu account if you go to Yahoo View, which is a thing I didn't know existed. So, so here's a so there's a site <laughs> there's a site called Are you v- snitching? Only on companies. Okay. Yeah. No one listens to this. <laughs> I'll whisper it that way. The company make sure can't you go hear. to Yahoo View on incognito. On incognito that way, no yeah. one sees. Because like real talk, the thing I'm about to say is you might be right. If if like. 20,000 people right now went to watch this on Yahoo View. Someone might notice that Yahoo Some View Some web manager sees their Amazon Yo! web services spiking yeah. like, the fuck what is the fuck? A, what? That deal ended three years ago. So, <laughs> so I have to, I'm just going to keep fucking diving at this point. If you go to because.moe, no. M-O-E. What? If you go no. to because.moe, it's an anime like streaming search engine thing. It's like one of those good sites where you're just like, hey, is this thing I want to watch online somewhere for me to watch legally like not illegally not searching oh, okay, okay. it's one of those good sites it's one of those good sites put it on the, if they put if they put me quote they're allowed you know what go with god i've done the sign of the Via cross Candios. you put my name on this site i'll live I, as long as these people aren't terrible please you know what just yeah if, that, that was dangerous Austin. i don't know i don't okay i hope they're not terrible it's a very simple site they're not they're not saying anything. It's just a site you can search for things. So you go to because.moa, you type in Gundam. Here's what I did. Like Google. I'm, I'm yeah. this, like Google. It's like Google for anime. Put that on the site. Uh, and it just says like, oh, did you want to watch Gundam Seed? And one answer is no. But if I did, it has link outs to where I could go do that. Like it has the Crunchyroll logo and then it has the VRV and Crunchyroll logo because that's where it's hosted right now. And so while I'm doing this, I notice a lot of logos I recognize. Crunchyroll, uh, Hulu is there now. Netflix is there because they have a Gundam show. Um, there's the Funimation logo down here. And then there's this weird, like, purple and white Y. And I'm like, who the fuck is that? And it turns out it's Yahoo because years ago, Yahoo signed a deal with Hulu where – do you remember how you didn't used to have to pay for Hulu? Yeah. You still don't. You just have to go to Yahoo View to do that. Yahoo View – is still an ad-supported Hulu with all of Hulu's stuff, or at least a great deal of it, that just lets you, it's just, it's just that. It's just the Hulu stuff, but on Yahoo, and it's ad-supported instead of you have to subscribe. So. Who knows about this? Sorry, I meant to whisper. Pretend I whisper. So do you like Gundams? (laughs) Do you like ads? Do you like ads? Here's the other thing. I I watched it on, on Yahoo View. No ads played. 
So I don't know that they have ad inventory. <laughs> oh shit! Our sales team got. No, sorry. <laughs> wow! It's programmatic. It's programmatic. Cut, cut that. Cut that. Cut don't. Um, our sales team tries really hard, uh, and they're getting better all the time. Uh, so. My point is, one, Yahoo View exists, which is a thing I didn't know about. If you Google it, you'll find. If you search for it, you'll find. I'm, I'm what here. Do you see what I'm talking about? Isn't it wild that it exists at all? Just clicking on the passage, episode eight. There you go. You know, if you want to go watch This Is Us right now, and you can do that. And it just has the, ho- the Hulu logo there. Yeah, dude. It's wild. It says, full episode, season one, episode eight, Hulu. No, this is Yahoo View. <laughs> this is Yahoo View. It feels like someone in Yahoo was like, no, nah, just use my account. Just use my login. Oh, no. That's what it feels like. You broke up with Yahoo years ago. <laughs> and yet, and yet you can still use all No, nah, but we're still on good terms. We see each other. Works. You know, yeah, password still works. Uh, you know, he said it was okay. He said it wasn't a big deal. So, you know, it's we still see each other around Thanksgiving anyway. It's weird. I know he's dating my brother, but, it was, you know, still lets me use the Hulu. <laughs> so it's all good. People should go watch OHMS Team with one note really quick, which is you should you should watch you should watch the dub or content warnings. The first episode absolutely has a homophobic slur in it as they are setting up a gross hypermasculine unit that the main characters are not part of. It's like, this is how soldiers talk. And it's like, boom, slur. And it's like, yikes. Uh, gotcha. That slur but is they're not. just there to be like the, the team and predator, basically. Yeah. Like, but, like, but like not even. Yeah. It's literally team. throw just away. Just going to get fucking murked. It's. it's I'm not defending the use of the slur there, to be clear. And the U.S., yeah. the dub, the English dub does not use the slur. Okay. It still says pansies, which is still communicating the same thing, which is like, man, fuck these rando soldiers. These guys fucking suck. Yeah. Not like my soldier cops. Not like my troop cop. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, the <laughs> is a really interesting, like, first step into the Gundam universe. It's low in, like, power level. It's about a group of... Like soldiers who are in a jungle, uh, who it, it's like a Romeo and Juliet meets Vietnam story meets giant robots. That's like the meets 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 on Gundam. Well, and if we can all watch it, um, everyone can watch it, and I Easily. think, and I also think it's not. The, I think that some some people responded like, "This isn't the best one. Why aren't you telling people to go watch the best one?" One, I think, because it's a great. F- way to judge what someone wants from something as broad as a 40-year-old franchise like Gundam that has dozens of incarnations. If you come back to me and go, hey, I want more hard-ass, real real military shit, I can put you in one direction. And we go, hey, I really like that weird super science stuff, I can put you in a different direction. Um, two, it's bad in ways that a lot of Gundam is bad. Uh-huh. And so it's a good test for if you can fucking handle it. If you get like five episodes in and you're like, hey, all these women are dope, but this show kind of mistreats them and undersells them. And like, uh, I can live with it, but I wish they did better. Then you're good to watch Gundam. If you're like, no, it never gets this right. I'm, I'm mad at it. You know, it's going to keep fucking it up and you're going to have to keep gritting your teeth and be like, man, I wish it it has interesting women characters all the way through it. It just never does them justice. And it's mm-hmm. so frustrating. Not never. Never is strong. 40 years. They, they do their women characters Occasionally they sometimes. get it right. Occasionally. <laughs> but most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I watch season five, episode seven of, seven of seven. Gotham called Ace Chemicals. Right now. But you can't watch. But you can't watch The Handmaid's Tale. So it's like well, that some. A, that's a specific. That's oh. Huh. Yeah. So maybe they're not they're maybe they're specific original programming, no. Just their TV shit, maybe. TV stuff and some license stuff. Still, there's a lot of shit, man. You want to watch season 20, episode 16 of Law and Order SVU? Totally. Sign, facing demons. Trigun Classic is on episode. here. SNL is on here. 
Modern Family is on here. There's just an anime tab. Yeah, dog. I'm on it, it right now. It just says home comedy <laughs> Anime. anime. That's the third Sci-fi one. Sci-fi and fantasy, <laughs> three drama, <laughs> action adventure, movies. Movies. Anime, second billing. Anime also a good genre. Movies. <laughs> movies. I love movies. Uh, their pop, most popular movie. What do you think their most popular movie is? I saw it. I can't say it. I don't know. It's Yu-Gi-Oh! The movie. Mm-hmm. So just Isn't people that just, an anime? People are just anyway. coming here to watch anime. Yo! Right. Guess what their list of uh, comedy movies has? Patrick, this is very special. Evil Bong 777. Yeah. I'm pulling it up now. Yep. Didn't uh-huh. know that was a one. Uh-huh. Where's mine? Yours isn't on Where's here. Mine? You gotta get this on here. God. There's not a lot of movies on here. There's some there's some documentaries. Future Baby. I don't know what that is. Our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep <laughs> off the album After Midnight. There's you can find Mass that at Too Mellow. There's a Mass Effect anime. Uh-huh. You can keep up Mass with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. <laughs> I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. You can find Austin on Yahoo. Uh, Yahoo. <laughs> uh, Patrick, <laughs> Patrick, where can people find you? Am I signing with my Yahoo account? Will I get more? Danielle, where can people find you? <laughs> you Your Yahoo account? Danielle. I use it for fantasy R-I. football. That'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Please be sure to rate and review us. Actually, you know what? After you hold off on rating and reviewing us, Uh, next week episode, like, but just you know, make a little settle. What if we had a Hulu ad in the middle of this episode? Uh, I think we're a five star cast. Not for me to say. Um, We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday. Uh, But you should also be sure and listen to our podcast. Be good and rewatch it. Where this week. Uh, file recovery, God willing. Uh, we're going to be revisiting the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries starring Jennifer L. and Colin Firth. Hope you'll join us for that and join us again next well, week for Red Points. But until then... Yeah, we are not... We'll be clear. The first yeah, don't, two... Don't just say uh-huh. like you're, you're, you're going to talk about the whole series. Can you... Oh, uh, yeah. We... Can you give a little Many background parts. on what's happened on the recording? Because it's a whole ride. Okay, so originally we were going to cover this miniseries, this part miniseries. We were going to cover it in two episodes, episodes one through three, then four through six. Problem is, Danielle, Natalie, and I talked for over two hours and had not gotten through episode one. Mm -hmm. And then we were like... Did, is this a fuck up or is it an opportunity? Right. And we decided <laughs> it's an opportunity. I wanna, yeah. And I want everyone listening to internalize that. Is this a fuck up or is this an opportunity? Mm-hmm. You know? Waypoint. Waypoint. Yep. I, you know what? Is this yep. a fuck up or is this an opportunity? <laughs> yep. Welcome to our new recording studio. The plug is half in. <laughs> yes. However, things that are unambiguous fuck ups, somebody deleted the file for that podcast off our media server overnight. Yep. Not so one of us. Not a euphemism. That was not us like being like, we don't want to drag someone on the team. Someone on a different team did this. Is this right, Kato? Yeah. They yeah, did okay. a fucksy upsy. They did yeah. do that. A hundred percent. But who knows? Could be an opportunity for us to re-record or something like that. Who knows? <laughs> this episode is going to drop at some point. We're going to be going deep on this series. Hope you'll join it, join us for it. In the meantime, do not give in to astonishment. They have meet the press on here. Oh boy. <laughs> When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Yahoo! David Gregory, you're bust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, now, if you're going to get into political shows, I think you got to start on Face the Nation. <laughs> oh! They don't have Face the Nation, unfortunately. We did. Yeah, but the, the zeros are boring. Come on. Drop oh. the zero. Right, pick, pick a time you like. Get with the, where, where am I moving it? This uh, way? 17. Oh, four. 17. That seemed like a that was a full second different. A but bit that, of a delay, but but it was seventeen. Yeah, I, I believe you. I believe you. And they were pretty much Brooklyn the same, switches so. the daylight saving time at two a.m. on Sunday, March tenth. Oh, I'm so excited for that. Is that the good one? It's the bad no, one. It's not. It's the bad. No, it's the bad one. No, we need more daylight. Yeah, we, we get more an, daylight. We lose an hour of sleep. We lose an hour of sleep. It's nothing oh, is worth. Man, I ain't fucking yeah, not everyone has kids. Anyway. Okay, so for yeah, some so people, this I'm is a big so, deal. I'm sorry. I'm saying for me, the minority <laughs> I in this get equation. Hours, I am excited. That, also, as a work from home person, like, give me that, give me that <laughs> sweet, sweet sun for a little bit longer instead of four forty-five in the afternoon. It gets dark. Patrick, we we're don't, in a we cube. don't see the sun. We're in a cube. <laughs> they put months, us in a cube. Months. We don't see the sun here. Patrick, this is what I look like. This is what we see. This is what I see all day. Did you pull it off the wall? Yeah. Yes. No, this isn't up on the wall yet. You know what? Start sending sending me free snacks and then we'll talk. All right. You you can have literally all the snacks snacks from the office. Jesus Christ. I'll get you some pineapple nom noms or whatever the fuck it was that Chris Remo loved all those years ago. I'll get you some nature box, kid. We'll get you on that budget. Big Island Pineapple. There you go. Get a sponsor by Nature Box. Is that still around? Free stuff train. Let's do it. Is it? Nature Box, MeUndies, Casper, Bombas off. I liked that brief boom in subscription services that would just send you random shit. Yeah. And Boxes it was like, shit. surprise, here's, here's some random shit we mm-hmm. bought from a surplus uh, vendor. Yeah, that was good. Those still exist. My friend does one of those. And then the garbage he gets in the mail is fascinating. Oh, I fucking bet. Bark box for doggies. Mm. Mm. Bark box. Bark box seemed like the real low ebb of that Remember entire bark idea. Bark box? That was fun. I remember that. Good ads. Fox, fox. <laughs> All it's right. one of our best ads. Okay. All right.